Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Kenneth Rose. Ken is Senior Research Fellow at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California, and Emeritus Professor of Philosophy and Religion at Christopher Newport University in Virginia. He teaches and publishes in the areas of comparative religion, comparative mysticism, religious pluralism, and the philosophy of meditation. He developed and led the online course Wisdom and World Religions, which is supported by a Templeton World Charity Foundation grant. His degrees include a Master of Divinity from Harvard Divinity School and an MA and PhD in the study of religion from Harvard University. At Harvard, he was a fellow at the Center for the Study of World Religions. His books include Yoga, Meditation, and Mysticism, Contemplative Universals, and Meditative Landmarks, which is a book we'll talk a little bit about today, and Pluralism, the Future of Religion. Influenced as much by the Bhagavad Gita as by Thomas Merton and the Buddha, Professor Rose has engaged in a lifelong quest to understand and practice spirituality in light of the sublime mystical texts and practices in the world's wisdom traditions. So with that, hi Ken, thank you so much for joining me. Hi Jacob, thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm really uh, eager to, to have our conversation today. I'm looking forward to talking to you about uh, a number of really interesting topics, including um, kind of, you know, a little bit of the politics about of religious studies as it's uh, generally practiced. Um, but we're going to explore that topic um, within the kind of larger conversation about a comprehensive uh, spiritual philosophy, which I know is something that of, of deep interest to you, and developing that comprehensive spiritual philosophy for um, our, our contemporary context. So before we get into that, I'd love to hear just a little bit about your own personal story story and kind of what led you to the study of, of religion and also and maybe also how that because I mentioned in the bio that you're also a practitioner you practice this spirituality as well so how does this uh, the study of religion relate to your own practice well thanks for the question Jacob good question yes um, this is a discussion that I often have with other uh, with colleagues uh, in religious studies and it does seem to be a divide I don't want to overstate it, but there is a kind of practitioner, non-practitioner divide in the study of religion. Mm -hmm. And some people come to the study of religion because of a curiosity or an interest that was awakened perhaps as an undergraduate uh, in some historical matter or perhaps some, some cultural matter. And then there are the others, um, and you especially experience this in, in doctoral programs, there are the others who come because of a passionate involvement in a in an alternative religious movement and so there there are these two groups and some of us of course if you spend time getting socialized in the academy you will inevitably put on that more academic uh, style it will kind of overlay your practitioner uh, um, a base um, and so I have all that's who I am I am a person who came to the study of religion not out of a kind of intellectual curiosity but out of my own spiritual practice which began in the 19th 60s in New York. I grew up in Brooklyn. Oh, okay. And I didn't know that. I grew up in, yeah, I, I was born in Park Slope and uh, I spent the first, you know, 20 years of my life there. And in the late 60s, um, it was a time of great cultural ferment, as yes. you know. Mm -hmm. It was a time of consciousness expansion and exploration. And um, at one point, I discovered yoga. I read Swami Vivekananda's Raja Yoga and then I went looking for a yoga teacher. And it's hard to imagine in Brooklyn and Park Slope today not being able to find some a yoga a yoga studio. There was 
virtually nothing. Mm. So I taught myself a sequence of asanas from a popular book of the day uh, called Yoga, Youth and Reincarnation by Jess Stern, a wonderful book, mm. still valuable even today. And then that opened the door for me into the yoga world, those two books. And I began reading then the Upanishads, Bhagavad Gita, then the Bhagavad Gita, that led me to a deep encounter with the Krishna movement, Krishna consciousness. And that was profound influence in my life uh, in the early 70s, deeply shaped by the bhakti traditions of, of Hinduism. And it was from that that I began then to explore other facets of spirituality. I had a deep encounter then as I was I was raised in Brooklyn. I come from a Jew, a, a Catholic family with a Jewish grandfather. I had no exposure to Protestants or evangelical Christianity. But as a Hare Krishna devotee, back in those days, we were very visible. And so I began encountering uh, 20 times a day people telling me about Jesus. So eventually, telling me about the fact that I was on the wrong path. And this was interesting to me as a Catholic growing up in New York. And so at any rate, that's, it, was that, it was that dilemma between these two very different and very attractive to me religious worlds that eventually led me to become a philosophy major at Ohio State and then went off to Harvard to study religion, specifically with a focus on these deep issues of religious pluralism, religious difference, which is true. Can there be more than one true religion? Are all religions true? Questions like that. And that, and that, of course, all along, I continued to meditate, to practice yoga, off to India, I studied there in different places, and have a deep and abiding connection to Advaita Vedanta through the teaching of uh, Ramana Maharshi. Mm. Excellent. So the methodology of your meditation, has it sort of been consistent over those years, or have you shifted sort of modalities along the way? Yes, well, you know, I have shifted modalities, but as I take up in my book, the, the book Yoga, Meditation, and Mysticism, basically there are just a couple of meditative uh, skills, or there are two components to meditation. You can pretty much reduce meditative styles to these two components. So there's even a neuro, ne neurological basis for them. Yeah. And one of them is, uh, is concentrative, uh, you might say focused attention, and the other one is a kind of monitoring and open awareness approach, uh, just being the witness consciousness. And what happened early on, of course, like most meditators, I started with a concentration practice. And then I had a long time with bhakti practices, chanting, japa, uh, and of course, all of the wonderful pujas and and ritualism of devotional Hinduism. But then as I became more deeply shaped and connected to Buddhism, I began to practice more insight-based approaches, more open awareness, analytical approaches, with the result that today I would say that my practice has reduced very simply to just uh, in, a, in a still and tranquil, concentrated state of mind, just being aware of whatever arises and not remaining attached to it. That's my basic practice mm, today. Beautiful. So, you know, just to step back a little bit, you were mentioning in, um, you know, you went into the academic study of religion from this kind of uh, pr practitioner perspective. And I'm just curious, you know, uh, uh, to give us a little inside view of what's happening in there. When you are taking on the kind of um, you know, vocabulary and way of speaking and, and, you know, putting on the robe, so to speak, of kind of the academic. Were, did you find that that stifled in any way your 
your the 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 curiosity of the practitioner or you know are there maybe another way uh, way of asking this is are there forces within that academic environment that would sort of stifle that kind of open-hearted curiosity well you know the academic world has its own norms and it's like any other high-pressured high-status institution like like yeah. a hospital or a medical center. I mean, you come as the student to medical school, you don't teach the teachers, they teach you. And it's the same thing when you go into a high-powered doctoral program in the study of religion. The the cultural norms, the the, the ideological perspectives, uh, either you adapt to them somehow or you find yourself eject, ejected from the system, perhaps <laughs> at the master level. Yeah, right. <laughs> you wind up with the terminal master's degree instead of the PhD. It's a long, grueling process getting a PhD. PhD yeah. uh, in these areas, and believe me, there is a great. There's a lot of opportunity for doubt and for mental distress along the way. And I would say that part of it for me was the tension between what I had to do, what I had to study, what my doctoral advisors would let me work on, and what I wanted to work on. Yeah, yeah. And what's happened is that since then, my own interests have reemerged, mm. and but they. They came back with a lot more rigor than they had before I went to grad school. And so my book on yoga, for instance, it's clearly rooted in a in a practitioner's perspective, which has never left me. But on the other on the other hand, I gained many of the critical analytical and research tools that have enabled me to, I think, uh, mount a, a fairly sophisticated argument. Beautiful. Wow. So the. Um... I guess another uh, sort of follow-up question to that would be, have you sort of seen over the years, it seems to me from what I understand that it, it, that perhaps there's a little bit less sneering at the, the practitioner within the academic environment or, yeah. or there's been more of an openness to this, what we're calling, what we you and I were discussing before the, uh, we started recording, which is the scholar-practitioner intersection. Have you seen that to be the case? Is there sort of less sort of um, criticism of the practitioner within that environment? Yes, you know, uh, when I first went to uh, Harvard Divinity School to get my first master's, my Master of Divinity degree, that was a 1982 or 83. And there was no practitioner, public practitioner press wow, yeah. pers- there. But I, unless you, it was different. If you were a if you were training to be a minister in a religious setting, then of course you were a practitioner. But if you were a scholar of Asian religions, the practitioner perspective, it, it had no voice then. Right. And there was, and I, and there was, um, but what happened is that the, the doctoral study, the doctoral programs were overwhelmed in the 80s and 90s by people of my generation, you know, the baby boomers, who were these radical experimenters in consciousness, people who went to Asia, just just didn't, you know, Alan Watts and those great figures, they did a great service by opening doors for us. But in my generation, people actually started on Moss going to Asia and finding teachers. And the teachers came here as well, Buddhist and Hindu, a whole wave of them. Yeah. And so by the time we got to grad school in the 80s and the 90s, uh, we actually, and now that we are the older academics, many of us, we actually were able to shift that so that the practitioner perspective has become much more acceptable uh, and uh, and it inf- influences, I think, a lot of the scholarship of a lot of people that you even that you speak to in these chithead interviews who are academics and practitioners. 
I love the way you just very carefully pronounced the uh, the name of the podcast again. <laughs> oh yeah, well it's that Sanskrit word chit. Yes, I, I like that. Yes, I, I, I always went, I always very much over enunciate it so we don't um, yeah. have any confusion. Although that's part of the playfulness of it, of course. Um, so Ken, you know the beginning of your book, Yoga Meditation and Mysticism, which I very much enjoyed um, reading, particularly the beginning. Um, you set the stage uh, of sort of the academic study of religion um, by sort of, uh, you know, telling a story about this um, battle between two academics, one representing sort of the perennialist camp and one representing this sort of new wave of, of, of what's called constructivism uh, in, in the study of religion. So I'm wondering if you can sort of give us a... Um, you know, a sort of um, synopsis of that, of that sort of uh, that opposition, and what are the stakes there in, in between those two positions? Right. Yeah. Well, that's a great question. Um, that was. Uh, I start the book with an anecdote uh, from uh, from 1990 in New Orleans, as I recall, and it was a it was a meeting of the American Academy of Religion, which is the main uh, North American organization uh, for uh, academic religion scholars, to meet. And we have a conference every year in different cities. And that year in New Orleans, there was it really was billed almost as if it were a prize fight, you know, that. Houston Smith, who who just died after a very long and influential life uh, last year, I believe, or the year before, um, who is the was the was in that period uh, the last academic defender of the idea that there's a a common core, a common mystical core or doctrinal core that the different religions express in their diverse uh, contexts. And that's the perennialist position, and it's a venerable position, and it had a great deal of dominance in religious studies uh, from the time of James, uh, uh, who was no, William James, but particularly through figures like uh, W.T. Stace, a philosopher who articulated perennialism in a very cogent and influential manner. Um, and it was, uh, so, so Smith uh, was the last defender of that position. And uh, Stephen Katz, who in 1977 published an article that be has become canonical and central uh, to religious studies, especially the study of mysticism, argued argued, and that this argument has won the day. It's starting to weaken now. That actually. There isn't a common mystical core. There isn't a kind of mysticism that Christians have uh, and that Jewish people have, and that the Jewish and Christian elements are really secondary to the mystical experience, which states defined as a kind of unitary experience of non-duality. What Katz argued is that actually there is no such thing as a common mysticism. There's only a Christian mysticism, a Hindu mysticism, and a Buddhism. And what characterizes these mysticisms as not their commonality, are not their commonalities, but what distinguishes them. What makes a Christian mystic Christian is that Christian mystics have experiences, say, of Jesus or the Trinity. And what makes a Buddhist mystic a Buddhist mystic is that Buddhist mystics experience in the Mahayana tradition some sort of insight into the non-ultimacy of any uh, of substances or doctrinal formulations. And so that then became um, it was a revolution in religious studies. And in 1990, it seemed pretty clear that perennialism had lost the day. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it had, actually. And it's only just recently that I would say that uh, attempts such as I make in my book 
uh, are starting to revive, not perennialism, but an essentialist approach. Perennialism has its strength and its weaknesses. Its strength was that it stressed the essence. Its weakness was that it tended to not pay attention to the specific matter of each individual religious tradition. So a new essentialism today is sensitive to context, but it also has a great ally in, uh, in, in neuroscience, in showing yeah. that there in fact are signatures, neuroanatomical, neurophysiological signatures of meditative states. Yeah, well, I definitely want to get into that. And we're, that's the direction we're moving towards is how right. the way in which you're grounding yeah. um, this sort of new perennialism in, in neuroscience, which is super fascinating. But one of the things I want to I want to just go back to this because, it, you know, uh, essentialism as uh, you know, has off is often in many um, situations considered a bad word because, you know, you think of yeah. I mean, even when I was in grad school, we were we were talking about the essentializing of identities and how that's an obstacle to, you know, uh, a kind of inclusivism, for example, with if you know, if I'm saying that there's an essential um, set of characteristics that are that make up, you know, that, comp that constitute w women, then I am probably marginalizing, you know, various intersections, African American women, you know, queer women, blah, blah, blah. And so yeah. the, the gesture against essentialism has been to, right, to to increase the kind of inclusivity and not marginalize, you know, at least in the context of our conversation, sort of minority religious practices that would sort of get, um, you know, Push to the side in order to to focus on what is said to be sort of essential. So in, I, I take your essentialism to be a little more nuanced than that. In, in, in since you're you know taking up the banner of it again, so can you explain how we can be essentializing without being marginalizing? Right. Well, it's a good question, and it's an important concern. And uh, the the point of uh, constructivism, and very importantly, and not in any way to be uh, uh, to be uh, to go back against it, was this stress upon the the specific characteristics of individual religious traditions. And you can see the analogy very much to our cultural identities. We don't want to essentialize one type of. A uh, cultural expression of being human, or a biological expression at the expense of others. So, so then, what what can we possibly say in, uh, in for a new kind of essentialism? Well, it's it. it I mean, so I would take perhaps the analogy of the hand, and uh, and how uh, one perhaps learns the skill of 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 doing something, driving a car, perhaps that really doesn't have much to do with our gender or our cultural identity. The, 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 the physiological and the anatomical characteristics of the hand in motion seem to be universal across, you know, I, but of course, that's just an example off the top of my head. I don't want, you know, there are people who have uh, disabilities and so on. So we can then go to the use of language. Languages are different. French is completely different from um, from Chinese or from from Hindi. Hindi is so different from uh, from Tamil. Tamil, and yet the you know the musculature that we use in articulating sounds, even if the range of articulation points is different from English and Sanskrit, we still have the same physiology mm -hmm. and also the the, the genetic capacity for language. That's so. Uh, that's 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 universally human. That's a defining characteristic of being human, regardless of our of other factors. So what I guess I'm arguing, what we are trying to argue, is that there is a 
there is a, a genetic and neurobiological signature that's associated with certain kinds of unitive non-dual mental states, and that these occur across all religious, or they, these, these can be discovered in many religious traditions, and they can be discovered outside of religious traditions. And this is what, what I'm interested in, is this capacity this, that we have for concentrative meditation and for analytical insight types of meditation. Mm. And that doesn't seem to be rooted fundamentally in any, uh, in biological or cultural identities. And, and not in any way to undercut the different religious traditions. This is not meant as a kind of move to, this was part of the problem with the old perennialism, is that often it was used to simply sidestep religious traditions. And people yeah. in those traditions necessarily felt like they were being misinterpreted. Right. So what we want to do is shift the ground and focus upon the mystical experience, the common mystical experience, without necessarily entering into all sorts of discussions about the differences. Believe me, in religious studies, academic religious scholars will never give up the detailed, fine-grained study of particular traditions. That's like the bread and butter of our discipline. Yeah. What I'm just asking for is that we also return to this other bread and butter, if you will, this uh, activity, which is to study what's common between religious traditions. Yeah, beautiful. So let's go then to um, the what you sort of who you're um, arguing against, and this particularly the introduction, which is, uh, and I think also the first chapter, which is the form, this form of constructivism. Which why don't we just unpack that? What it, what is constructivism? Uh, precise. I know we're sort of talking about it, but I'd love to get sort of a definition for those that are kind of new to that academic-y word. <laughs> right, it's a very academic-y word. And, uh, and so, well, okay, so constructivism is the term that has emerged among academics. And Stephen Katz himself early on preferred a, a, a still academic-y, but more intuitively clear word, contextualism. Right. And, and um, the the perennialists, perennialism is a little bit more, people get a little bit more from that than they get from essentialism. Yeah. And so those are more the, those uh, on the ground words. But, but contextualism, context matters, basically. It's what you just said. It really, it really does matter to how I experience being human, which cultural and biological set of characteristics are, are significant for me. And so context is sensitivity to that. And, and today, especially in the academic world, but many people, younger people in particular, very sensitive to identity and contextual issues. Yeah. And unfortunately, in older, sometimes older people have more essentialistic understandings and they get threatened when they are confronted with a new generation's understanding of context. So that is what Stephen Katz did for the study of religion. He pulled us back to context. He pulled us away from abstractions and generalizations. And then perennialism. So perennialism kind of, it disappeared. Even the word sounds a little bit, you know, like, you know, like, I know, trolley cars and, and, and propeller planes and, I don't know, steamship, steamships. And so essentialism is a good philosophical word, and it essentially speaks to for instance, if I, if you, if we're speaking two different languages, and you're speaking French and I'm speaking uh, English, perhaps, uh, we depend upon some kind of translation manual. We depend upon yeah. a dictionary, and so there's a common meaning. If you say a red, uh, you know, there's a red door over there in French, and I say it in English, well, it's those common meanings, whatever they are, that allow us to translate between the two languages. And essentialism is really looking more for the, what is it that 
what are the, the general ideas the, that allow us to speak from our various silos and communicate with each other. You know, th like take an example. Uh, there was a lot of discussion about how to go home for Thanksgiving this year because of our political strife in our country and yeah. the division between so many people. You know, how do you sit at the Thanksgiving table and speak, you know, maybe you're coming from New York and you're going, I don't know where, and then suddenly you're speaking with people who have a completely different perspective on things. How do we speak to each other? And so contextualism can lead sometimes to such separation into yes. different silos that we forget our common humanity. And essentialism is an essentially a, an appeal to try to find the common meanings that can bind us back together to some degree. I love that. Um, I love that analogy because it's it really does sort of. Um, you know, illustrate the stakes of something like essentialism in a time when, yeah, we're sort of siloing ourselves. We are, you know, and social media and the internet encourages us into these sort of, you know, um, little little marketing camps. You know, different types of people that can be marketed certain types of things because they all like the same thing. And it's yeah, it's I'm I'm really glad you pointed that out. So I want to tease out a few um, features of kind of, you know, we can see, I think it's it's quite clear now, we can see sort of what the what the gesture of uh, constructivism or contextualism was and why it was justified um, for, for good reason. Um, but then there were some unfortunate, you know, ramifications of, of that um, approach. And one of them, you say, is how it lost sight of the mystical. And, and so, and, and, and for me also, you know, I find when I, when there's sort of these cultural, contextual sort of analyses of mystical practice, it's often, oftentimes, it seems like they explain away mystical or religious aspects by, you know, explaining them as, as sort of products of cultural conditions, you know, right? So as, as if like mystical experience is sort of a hallucinatory byproduct of, you know, social strife, right? And so, you know, and so can you explain a little bit about that and, and how and how we've sort of fallen into that um, as a sort of as we as we look at religion? Right. Well, you know, this goes into lots of uh, d discussions that have been occurring uh, among philosophers and, and, and theorists in so many fields c connected with words like mo modernism, modernity, postmodernism, even post-postmodernism. So there's a lot of discourse out there. But I think the a simple way of looking at this is that um, classically in philosophy, East and West, there's a, a fundamental there, – there are these two ideas items that occur in a big picture theory of, of the universe, metaphysics, ontology. And you have a universal and you have a particular. So um, this pencil is a, a particular, and the idea of pence, pencil is, is, a, is a, a general idea. Um, and so I know that this is a pencil, and this isn't a pencil, because I'm making use of a a concept that allows me to distinguish between them. The concept makes it easy because I don't have to say to myself, okay, this is not a cup, this is not a tree, this is not a, a clock. You, you get the point. It would be too, I mean, a super, even our brain doesn't want to go through all of that. Yeah. So it uses a concept like a general notion. You can generalize to writing instrument and that's distinguished from, you know, a seeing instrument. So universals or general ideas 
are a kind of shorthand by which we're able to bring meaning very quickly to the otherwise infinite array of sensory data that's impinging upon our senses. Now, what happens with radical, uh, radically um, uh, differentiating approaches, those that stress difference, you know, broadly speaking, postmodern approaches, but this divide between difference and unity is as old as human thought, those that stress difference do it always as a reaction against old universals that become oppressive, systems that are essential. Think of Kierkegaard over against Hegel. And so there's a revolutionary call back to the particulars, back to context. And that is that is necessary. And it may work for a generation or so. But then you get to the point, you said it so nicely there, that it starts out as a powerful call to affirm our identity over against oppressive, generalizing, essentializing structures. But in our hyper-capitalist hyper society, very quickly they become marketing niches as well. Yeah. And then people become a little bit, oh, I'm just like marketing myself here. And then we get a little bit tired of that. But not only that, we start to lose our ability to communicate with others. And so the, so that's why, um, I mean, if, if you present me with that and then that and then that, at some point I could say, oh, yeah, writing utensils instead yeah. of, you know, fet in a fetish-like manner only interested in this. So you can take religious studies when it gets to the point of stressing difference too much. I give this uh, il illustration on my book. A religious studies scholar can be not interested in the general notion of writing instruments like I am, but interested only in this particular object. You know, it has a point, it's red, it's, it's spherical. He's lifting or, up a red uh, pen you know, for those that can't see. Right. <laughs> oh, it's a, I'm holding a red pen. And then I want to know about the social history of this object and who used it and where it was bought to the point where I know everything about this except that it's a writing instrument. That I don't know. Yeah. I don't know that it's actually, its function is basically to write. and Or if I do know that, it's not interesting to me. Yeah. So, so... There's the that's the the fundamental issue with with stressing overstressing difference when it becomes a kind of a cliched gesture is that then we become isolated in our own islands of significance to the point where ultimately we even lose our ability to communicate with anybody except ourselves. And that's what leads to a painful narcissism. Too much stress on difference can lead to one of the great social crises of our time in the United States today is our social isolation, our, our sad to say, our narcissism and our increasing incapacity to make these deep connections that older generations had. So I think that a return to common meaning, dangerous as it might be, fraught as that can be, might a little bit of a nudge in that direction could help us perhaps to start creating some common structures of, uh, of association, affiliation, of meaning with each other again across all of the various divides that separate us right now. Yeah, that's so interesting. And, you know, another kind of feature of this that um, that I think we're speaking about is what you point out as being... Um, you know, th this constructivist approach often negates the emic or the insider perspective of yes. the 
right. uh, for the so-called objectivist position, which, you know, oftentimes, you know, and we're also we've also had all these critiques of, you know, the objective position because it actually turns out to be a very particular position, um, you know, one that has, you know, scientific ideology, reductionist kind of materialist approach. Um, so yeah. really what turns out to be, you know, the true ob objectivity, if we can even use that word in this instance, seems to be something like the insider or at least understanding the kind of inner landscape rather than assuming that you get something objective out of this, you know, um, this, right. sort of, this other standpoint. Yes. I mean, that's, that's uh, extremely well stated. Uh, and what that prompts me to respond by saying that, as you know, and already 30 and four, 30 years ago, the whole notion of objectivity, which was completely discounted among academics. We haven't, this has been something that's been theorized and has been criticized away for, for generations now. And it has slowly come into the mainstream discourse. You, you, you still, you don't really hear much about the objective journalist any longer. Whereas that used to be a stock and trade idea, even until recently. No, no, what, what postmodernist studies and, uh, and critical theory has shown is that every position is has, a, has an implicit ideology every perspective is over uh, is is overdetermined with uh, with values and biases there from that perspective there can be no objectivity which of course then becomes an argument against essentialism so the question is can we go too far with that sort of argument and and what you see is very very odd uh, and you 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 mentioned this it, it's that you sometimes find that academics in their in their uh, who study religion will um, in their historical critical approach to a religious tradition will produce an account of that tradition that is completely alien to the emic perspective yeah. the etic perspective is completely contrary to it and the people inside the tradition just wholesale they reject it yeah. And the academic then becomes a person who sometimes uses that authority, that perch, to insist that they don't understand, we understand better. And so the ultimately the person who started out to understand the insider becomes the ultimate outsider uh, denouncing or misunderstanding the insider perspective from the standpoint of what the insider sees as the alien theoretical perspectives of the Western, North American, or Eurocentric academy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that sort of made me think as, while you were talking, it, it sort of made me think about how even um, there's this, obviously there's the, the emic, I guess that's how you pronounce it, insider view of particular religions. And then there's the insider view, even of, you know, we're talking about how in religious studies, it's this constructivist anti-perennialist approach. And yet most spiritual people, people who call themselves spiritual, but not religious, this whole movement, they, that's the fundamental, perennialism is the fundamental view. I mean, it is, it's, and so there's, you know, even in religious studies, it's like a denouncing of what people in just the general population take to be the case. Right. That's clearly the case. You know, I noticed that very early on that uh, regardless of what we, of what academics would say, the perennialist approach by whatever name you like, that's the approach that appeals to people. Because let's face it, 
the academic approach is interesting. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to know about the well. It's it can be revolutionary too, but it's interesting at the very at the very least to know about the social history of a particular practice. Certainly, but it doesn't, and and it can be very liberative for people in context who may be oppressed in that context. So it has its it has its revolutionary characteristic, but it can also seem rather flat to people who approach. Let's say you approach the yoga, yoga Sutra because you're a yogi and a meditator and you want guidance. So that's a completely different perspective from someone who approaches it because you're interested. You want to understand how that text reflects a kind of Brahminical appropriation of shramanic traditions to serve the, you know, ultimately the, the you know, to serve in the social context of India, uh, the, the interests of that group. Yeah. And that's, of course, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and then also sort of on that note, I, f I feel like there's um, when when one and this is happening a lot, I feel like, you know, because more and more people are interested, for example, within the yoga community of reading the the work of academics on kind of the history of Hatha Yoga. And it's it is fascinating work, but there's a kind of danger, I think, and maybe danger is wrong to inflammatory a word, but there's this kind of risk of by overemphasizing the kind of specificity of a particular historical juncture and a, par a particular um, context approach to the practice, it alienates the kind of livingness, aliveness of the practice for the practitioner. By it, because yes. then, because then they sort of there's also this implicit argument. I feel like that you know in the study of Hatha Yoga that these are the authentic practices. And if you're not practicing these authentic practices, which are often very, uh, it's a very, it's very other, you know, it's like, we're not necessarily going to suck, you know, um, juice up our, you know, anal passage or, you know, how, whatever obscene things are happening, you know, and so it's sort of like, well, if I'm not practicing that authentic practice, then I'm not really practicing yoga. And so I guess I might as just throw everything out. You know, right. they don't, as what you're saying, it's like, what is lost again is what is the common thread that that, you know, even in this very, like, seemingly radical, radically different contextual moment, there is still something of yoga there that resonates with my own experience. Yes, yes. I mean, I, as you said, what's the kind, the common thread? And I think that, uh, so I'm a philosopher. I'm, that was my major as an undergraduate. And I, and I studied with philosophers at Harvard. Hillary Putnam was one of my doctoral advisors. Oh, wow, so amazing. I, yeah, he, he was a great human being. Uh, one time when I was ill and he was reading one of the chapters in my dissertation uh, up, up at, at the Center for the Study of World Religions, Hillary Putnam came to my home to read the chapter with me. Amazing. And uh, he was a he was a really great, a great human being, a great successor to William, William James, whom he deeply admired. Um, and uh, so. I have always been shaped and fundamentally concerned by philosophical issues. And, you know, from a philosophical standpoint, philosophers bring certain skill set to these questions that maybe a tech scholar doesn't. And usually in the academy, we're aware of that. But philosophers have a harder time uh, getting their perspective across, probably because we don't have like a broad-based material, you know, um, uh, register of, of activities and events. We're doing it up here. Yeah. And the reason why we're doing it up here is because, well, fundamentally, conceptually, you cannot have difference without sameness. 
they, they just you don't have them in isolation from each other. So at any time, you need to find a balance between stressing the common thread and stressing the unique contexts. And sometimes you have to you have to kind of bend to one side and sometimes to the other. But you can never eliminate one or the other. You can never eliminate difference. You can never eliminate identity or sameness. And I think that that if we if we were to take that basic bit of philosophical um, uh, that that conceptuality on board, we we could avoid a lot of these uh, these issues. And I think with yoga, but I don't want to go on so long with the answer. But I think that you're you're raising the question raising the question of what counts as real yoga. Of course, that's probably one of the dis discussions we're going to get into. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't even I sort of hesitate to even ask that question because, oh, yeah. uh, but, uh, but I, but I think that you know the, your way of answer because oftentimes again it's sort of like universalizing a particular, which is which is which yes. is a different approach um, than what you're taking as far as you know the yogic mystic itinerary, which we're going to talk about. Um, but oh, yeah. I, I guess my last sort of comment on you know who are critiquing, which is, um, you know, the, I love this term, the fetishization of the particular. And, and it sort of reminds me of, you know, again, I'm going back to the, the Hatha yoga, the Hatha yoga work, which again, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to like, um, criticize it because I think it's fascinating. It's so important for us to understand the history, but, but it's sort of, I think it's also an interesting, it's an important question to ask. So, so what, you know what I mean? In terms of the practitioner, how does the kind of, the kind of hyper particularization of this knowledge necessarily, um, you know, re relate to my own, again, yogic mystic itinerary. And so when, and, and I asked this question actually of James Mallinson when I was interviewing him and, and, and I, and, and I, and I appreciated his answer cause it was very honest. He said he wasn't very, he, I asked him, you know, how, how does this research relate to the practitioner? And he was like, well, I'm not actually positive or, or that it does. And, and that sort of, you know, says that the kind of trajectory of historical research is, might be something different than um, the kind of trajectory of the mm. practitioner. And so I think it's just some, some one of those things that's important to keep in mind because oftentimes yeah. it's, it's becoming, as we get really fascinated by all the histor historical research, and I can speak mostly from yoga because that's my kind of world, but um, you know, as we get fascinated by this research, it is important to remember that it is sort of like, it's a parallel and it, it's, it's interesting mm -hmm. as sort of for, uh, as a historical curiosity, but, but when we try to translate it to our own, um, kind of, you know, mystical practice, it might be, uh, maybe not so important. Yes. So yes. The, so um, the fetishization of the particular. I don't know if that's a or a transition point, but I do agree with you on that. Yes. Well, I guess my, my, my question out of that, sorry, I, I sort of went on. I'm enjoying, no. I, I love this conversation. No, I could inspiring. answer it. I but, could respond better. Yes. Well, I'm, my question is more, um, you know, what is the fetishization of the particular yes. and how is that sort of maybe becoming a, right. an issue? Right. And, and so I guess, you know, what I would, what I meant was, should I respond to that? Are we transitioning on? Because I think that, uh, uh, I think it's clear uh, this 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 idea uh, of the fetishization of the particular um, is is one of the one of the kind of weaknesses or professional uh, biases of academic religious studies. And in, in my book, I give this example uh, I, and, and I give this thought experiment of a of an auto engineer um, who uh, knows everything about uh, who is a is a theorist, a wonderful theorist, and is there because of her capacity to solve fundamental conceptual mathematical issues, but doesn't care about cars. 
and is not doesn't even own a car, lives in a big city, maybe New York, and you know sits is on the subway and rents, so it gets an Uber once in a while, right? And then you have the other person, another person, and that person would be the essentialist, perennialist philosopher. Doesn't care in the slightest about the particulars. All I want to know is, you know, I want to stay here with these kind of with this theorizing. And then you have another person, a kind of social historian, has a 1957 Bel Air Chevy or something like that. Pick a different car, and knows everything can document down to each piece where it was produced, its part number, and then the social history of that car, who drove it, Every has, has record of every owner, has gone and interviewed those people. But again, this person maybe lives in San Francisco and takes Uber all over the place, has no interest in cars. I don't know where they would keep the car. It actually has restored the car, too. And that's a bit of a way and a thought of experiment of trying to get at what happens with the fetishization of the particular. We lose sight of what the car is for. We're so caught up in detailing the part numbers yeah. and telling you the social history of the production facility that produced that part. I can write a dissertation on that. But hold, hold on a second. What about driving? Oh, dri I don't even have a driver's license. Sorry, I don't, I don't know what you think. There's Uber. I can take Uber. Uber's there. Yeah, I can rent. You know, I can get a zip car when I need one. All right. So and uh, so that's that's that is the danger of that approach. And uh, and and I think it does go to. Um, so I want to be careful when talking about these matters. It's easy, again, to generalize. Yeah. To overgeneralize and then talk about, you know, a kind of practitioner uh uh, scholar divide. I think that it's subtler than that. And a lot of really great practitioners, scholars, they may not talk about their practice. And some of them may not practice and others may practice, but they feel that it's inappropriate to talk about it. Yeah. And they have two hats, if you will, the practitioner hat and then the scholar hat. And by the way, James Mallinson's book, The Roots of Yoga, I, I was just reading it again last night as I prepared for this. This is an excellent, excellent book because it helps to answer, I think, a lot of questions that have been raised in, in recent academic yoga scholarship. And I generally tend to take the more the Mallinson approach uh, on these questions. And the scholarship there is immense and the recovery of text is extraordinary. Well, I guess what I would like to say, fundamentally, what I see yoga as, if you want to find uh, the kind of essential kernel of this, if we can even do that, and not even of, of yoga as a word, because that word wasn't applied early on to what we today call yoga. Yoga fundamentally is this concentration of the mind so, or concentration in order to awaken to the, to the spiritual uh, ground of life. Yeah. And where that is present, I think we can safely say we have something like, like yoga, or dhyana, perhaps to use a, an earlier word that's part of the Yoga Sutra. And if we have that, then everything else can be seen as different ways of trying to evoke that uh, mystical state. Yeah. And, you know, and I just want to even go back for a second and say that, you know, after I, in the spirit of nuance, you know, I after I sort of said that about um, the fetishization of the particular in the context of yoga studies, which again, I've also read that book. I think it's an amazing book, but, but just to kind of go back on, on what I said a little bit, I think, 
It also is in, you know, it's inspiring people to remember the, because it, it, in these texts, it's very obvious what yoga is. It's a, it's a, it's a practice that is other than, or at least, you know, more than the, the asana practice. And I think that itself for the practitioner to inspire one to really engage in the more subtle practices, yes. that's really, um, yes. you know, at least if I'm, if I'm asking why it's important to practitioner, that certainly is one of the reasons. Um, yes. so, so now. Okay, so in the you you mentioned in your book, you know, uh, the question put by the constructivist is, or the 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 kind of argument of the constructivist is, well, there are only there are no there is no one religion or there is no perennial religion. There are just many religions with an S. And you you know your sort of simple response to that is, well, why do we call them religions in the first place? And exactly. so. So then as we move into this, your way of, of handling the, the kind of new perennialism, if I can just sort of share what you, yeah, you say you want to rehabilitate essentialism or this perennialism on contemplative universals rather than symbolic universals. So do you want to kind of um, help us, you know, transition into this um, exploration of, of, of uh, contemplative universals? I guess first we have to go through the, the brain to get to the contemplative universals. So maybe we'll start with that. All right. So in the book, I, I give an itinerary where I speak about uh, five contemplative universals, and this is clearly uh, uh, this is clearly essentializing talk. Um, and uh, but and that's a long. It, it's there are five stages to probably not have time to go through all that right now. But let me try to get to the very kernel, the essence of this, and say that at the very at, there are two basic kinds of mysticism that have been studied uh, by the in, in the study of the philosophical study of mysticism, and what we have, and this goes back to in, in Hinduism, it's there in Buddhism, and so on. It's the difference between a a content rich, sense uh, sensually and emotionally rich sense of of interaction, experiential encounters with uh, sublime realms. And that's often known as cataphatic spirituality or extrovertive mysticism. In, in Sanskrit, that's, these are saguna with form approaches. Uh, that's sampragnata samadhi in the Yoga Sutra. Apophatic mysticism in the Western tradition, excuse me, cataphatic. Now, on the other hand, what we have is this, uh, uh, this experience uh, that's even beyond experience, a sense of non-dual unity that is ineffable because words simply fail yeah. at a certain point words and images drop away the gods the deities the all of the subtle realms they simply fade away and there is what's left is this extraordinarily blissful sense of non-dual infinite consciousness um which if one backs away from it a little bit, one starts to sense that these are the vistas that the great, that the Buddha and the great uh, Siddhas, they speak about the, the, all of these subtle realms. And so you have this divide between the two and they correspond today to, if you will, open, open awareness, just sitting and being the witnessing self and then focused attention, which folk, when the, when the, when, when we become focused, what we start to notice is that our sense-based perceptions uh, are slowly re replaced by what seem to be subtler perceptions, altered states, to use a very materialistic concept, which are actually, actually 
concentration is a doorway into the subtle realms. Now, in pre and virtually every civilization except modern Western scientific civilization, which I see as very reductionistic and, and monodimensional, this was understood as an opening into the spiritual realms, the subtle realms. And so there are two mysticisms. One explores the subtle realms. It can lead to siddhis. It can lead to great powers, to omniscience. One can get caught up in that and become, and then there's the other a mysticism that leads to this extraordinary state uh, that's prior to all division. Now, it turns out that there is a, there seems to be a neuro, uh, a neuro, uh, a neurological, a, a neuro, a physiological correlate to that, that increasingly has been, uh, been, um, been uh, replicated in other studies. And it goes back to Andrew Newberg and Eugene Diakili's um, uh, discovery, they're neuroscientists, the discovery of, uh, the, of that when through meditation of the second type, and they've diversified this other forms of meditation, this is about, uh, I guess, 20, 20 years ago now, that there is a reduction of blood flow in the uh, posterior posterior superior parietal lobe, this side of the head, basically, the right parietal lobe. Uh, what, what has been noticed in recent studies is that as the blood flow in that area decreases, and why does it decrease? Why is there a reduction in metabolism in the side of the brain? Because the signals are coming from the senses and from perhaps and other parts of the brain. I'm not a brain scientist. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a philosopher, but it's extremely helpful to, to look to these studies. As the, as the uh, uh, blood flow and uh, re reduces what's occurring, what's actually happening is a reduced amount of transmission, uh, uh, electrical transmission to that part of the brain. It's called deafferentation. And as that deafferentation occurs, the sense of being a separate body in space disappears. Mm. And this is what some have said is a kind of neurological, neurophysiological, even neuroanatomical signature of non-dual unitive mystical states. And that's why someone like I today find more allies in contemplative uh, neuroscience or effective neuroscience or neurotheology than I would find among many of my colleagues in religious studies departments. Yeah, that's such, I mean, it's such exciting research. And, um, you know, obviously, we'll be exploring that and you'll be a part of this conference coming up where we're going to be looking at, at yeah. some of that research. Um, so I guess the, the immediate question, obviously, is that, uh, you know, the skeptic is going to is going to hear that and say, well, that just means that the brain is hallucinating, you know, mystical experiences, and we're just built for these kinds of hallucinations and it doesn't really you know say that something actually mystical is happening it yes. just says that something right. wildly imaginative is happening how do we get yes. around that well of course that's the first response that always comes and it's a, and it's an important response uh, i've heard it many times and I, I i have many many ways of dealing with the first one the most important one not the most important but the first one is that so what it's a great experience, all right? <laughs> and how would we know the difference? How would we know? I mean, we experience it as a mystical state. We can't get outside of ourselves, if you will, to, oh, and nobody else can either. The materialist has no more access to that a view from nowhere that would say conclusively, this is just brain generated and than I, than I have. Now, of course, uh, you can do things to the brain, like with the God helmet, Persinger's God helmet. You can stimulate with electrical stimulation of the temporal lobe and, 
and in his non-replicated, in his experiments with people put on this, uh, these electrodes, the EEGs, the God helmet, 80% of people had experiences of, of divinities and angelic entities. And, and famously, even Richard Dawkins put it on one time. Wow. And, and so, so, but I guess the question is, the example I like to use, so that, that's, that's one. What difference does it make if you have that experience? It's like, for instance, none of us will ever really experience death yeah. because either when we die and death, there is another life and we directly transition into that. Or if the materialists are right and when we die, we're dead, when the brain activity stops and the cells disintegrate, then you're really dead. It's not like near-death experiences. I mean, because those people's brains are still functional. They can still be resuscitated. But those cells are dead. The brain is gone. It cannot come back. You're dead at that point. But you will never experience it because to be to experience is you can't experience death because you have to experience it. And the last thing you can experience is the moment of death. You cannot experience death itself. Mm-hmm. And so, if a near death experience makes that extraordinarily blissful, then your last brain event is that of extraordinary bliss, and that's all you'll know. You won't know death because you'd have to be alive to experience death. So, so that's a little bit of a kind of, you know, for undergraduates, it's always fun to work with that one. Well, yeah, so now, I mean, that one is sort of like, because when you, when you say that you, because there are some people who remember death, but of course, those people who yeah. remember death aren't going to be denying the fact that something continues dead. after death. <laughs> yeah. So then the second approach I would take to that is that, um, uh, is that from a metaphysical standpoint, from, from it's, it's, we have no way of saying that the materialist perspective or the idealist perspective is the case. The, the data doesn't, you can't, that, that's why philosophy is different from data-based sciences. These are just two global ways of perceiving the same data. And you maybe it's temperamental that you choose one or the other. Now, I would say it's not merely temperamental, but the whole history of human spirituality and religion up until the current materialism of the modern West with a few materialist movements here and there has essentially agreed that religious experience is an experience of some something that's real and that's external to our 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 physical forms. So take another example. So you take you take your smartphone, and uh, um, you know the smartphone. If you it, let's say you don't have any network connection, no Wi-Fi, you're in airplane mode. Well, you can look at your pictures and you can maybe read some old things on your Kindle or look through some stored emails or whatever, but you can't really connect with anything. You're basically stuck. That's the materialist model, if you will, of the brain and its experiences. But actually, as soon as you get off, as soon as that plane, as soon as you touch the ground, we're all out of airplane mode. And immediately we're getting our text messages, our WhatsApp messages, our emails are coming down. We got the New York Times again. Boom, we're connected. And from the non-materialist, idealist perspective, that's what the brain and the body is really like. Now, could you have you? So, so, so basically, it's more the transmission model, the filter model, rather than the kind of closed box model. Yeah. I mean, we would. You remember back? You maybe I don't know, but when I got my first computer in 1983, I mean, it was rare to have a, a personal computer in those days. It had no internet connectivity. 
Apparently, early on, even Steve Jobs didn't want his little machines to have internet connectivity. So you had a word processing device. You had a, a spreadsheet processing device. Yeah. And that's essentially the materialist approach. But today, our, our devices are connected to the cloud. We, would, we, we couldn't bear to not be connected to all of these sources. So what's the difference? Some would say, well, it's still brain generated because after all, if you have a certain a neurological illness, it can change how you perceive things. Yes, if you have an old flip phone, right, and your and the plane lands, you can go. You can, of course, flip it back on and get your text messages and your emails. But you're not going to be able to get your Kindle, your photographs. Probably, you're not going to be able to get a lot of other stuff. And if you've got a top of the line smartphone, you're suddenly plugged into all sorts of stuff. Or suppose you drop your phone. Or suppose you have. There's an app that you want to use that's available at the App Store, but it's not an Android app. Well, the app's still out there, yeah, and you just can't use it because you don't have a phone that can access it. Yeah. So th those are different different approaches. Another example would be an older example, but pretty clear. It's like for that second issue. Back in the day when not everybody had a color television, it's hard to imagine, but there was a time. I grew up in a home, we had a black and white television. And when we got the color television, it was a big deal. That's a long time ago. But, you know, even today, if you turn on an old black and white television, you're not going to get the color uh, imagery. And in a way, that's a little bit like, you know, differences between different brains with their different, you know, pathologies and capacities. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone use the, you know, the tech, the technological device as an analogy for, um, you know, what the brain essentially, the function of the brain. Um, yeah. Because you would never think, obviously, as you're saying that, you know, my emails originate, the emails I receive originate in the computer. In the same way that, you know, the mystical experience originates in the brain in some way. It's that I, I have a device that may or may not be used to facilitate certain tasks or for, to facilitate certain inherent, you know, abilities. Um, so that's such a that's such a good um, analogy. So, OK, so let's sort of we're sort of end it, nearing the end of our conversation, which has yes. been inspired oh, yes. and totally fascinating. Uh, it's been my I've done three this week and this has been my, oh. one of my favorites for sure. Um and um, so the, the, the spiritual philosophy, the comprehensive spiritual philosophy that is sort of, you know, what you are, um, are in, super interested in your own work, how does that, is, is contemplative, the contemplative universals, the work on contemplative universals, a part of that? Or is, is there more to kind of this overall project that you, um, you know, foresee happening in your work in the future? Yes. Well, you know, at the end of the day, as an academic, I, I am a philosopher, and my fundamental concern is to articulate a metaphysical standpoint um, that uh, that is idealist uh, or that is not that is immaterialist. And that is, I see that fundamentally, reality is consciousness. That's a that's the word idealism is a Western term, but it's a little bit weak to express that. Um, and it's there's fun, fundamentally con. You can find analogies in Yogacara, in Buddhism, and certainly in Vedanta. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but fundamentally, reality is consciousness, and in its own uh, self, in its own uh, uh, own most form, it is beyond any even the word consciousness. But it's non-dual, and out of this consciousness, there arises as a self-expression of of the divine, of, of non-duality, of Brahman, uh, however you like to describe it, or even the emptiness, the shunyata, that dazzling ground of, 
of non-ultimate realities. What emerges from that is uh, a, a, a completely integrated uh, universe, which is both physical and material at the same time. And because it emerges from the source, they are coded. They have an underlying code, a dharma, if you will, that expresses in different registers. And one register is the physical, another register is the psychological or the mental, and another is the is the spiritual. And in each case, what we discover is the is the dharma of uh, of moving away from um, uh, dispersion in uh, in particulars and a movement back towards union with the source. Mm -hmm. And so, and so. Um, and so in our in our in our ethical life, we find that if we stress um, community and selflessness to some degree, our lives and our communal lives will go better than if we are always about ourselves. And similarly, in in spiritual matters, um, we discover that if we be, if we turn within and focus uh, uh, our attention upon an inner point, we begin to experience a kind of unparalleled happiness. And then eventually we come to the place where we experience uh, a kind of self-transcending oneness with what's ultimate. And so I guess the point I'm making is that the, the spiritual basis of life expresses itself in multiple registers. Uh, and at the physical level, at the psychological level, at, at the metaphysical level, and that a non-materialist uh, metaphysic, which was very dominant in Western thought until about 120 years ago, think of people like Bradley, think of Hegel before him, um, it sees that the unity of life is in consciousness and that its basic pattern expresses itself in all of these different uh, levels or layers of being. And to recognize that underlying pattern, the dharmas, is what the essentialist does. And uh, that's essentially my, what my philosophical project is about. And central to that is meditation, because yes. meditation is the fundamental probe yeah. And meditation is yoga in the broadest sense of the term. It's the fundamental tool that we have to discover these realms of, of, of insight and experience. Yeah, so my, next, my question that came up while you were describing that, which is fascinating and, 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 and so inspiring to hear, is the you mentioned in the book a meditation-based metaphysics. So I'm just curious, can we just a quick kind of, what is the difference between you know, metaphysics um, traditionally conceived and a meditation-based metaphysics. Uh, well, so you know, um, there there isn't there. So basically, that's a proxis. That's a that's a metaphysics with a proxis with a practice. Yeah. So one of the now, when you look at the great metaphysicians of of Indian and Buddhist thought, they were all great contemplatives. Yes. Shankara, yeah. uh, Nagarjuna. These were people who weren't just. But they also were great philosophers. They could work with the conceptualization. Now, when you look, someone very wittily said, a, a, a critic of German philosophy, looking back at Hegel uh, and at Fichte and, and, and others from that German idealist period, and even up to Bradley in the, in, the, in the English period, is that this was a profound insight into the nature of of, of of the universe from an idealist perspective, but it wasn't associated with a with a yogic practice. They didn't have a, a consistent contemplative practice that they could communicate to others. So, because when you in when you are in a deep state of non-dual insight, there's no conceptualization there. But the moment you return from that, the very moment the buddhi is the first uh, the first of the um, 
the first of the uh, the tattvas or principles that begins to operate, and the and the buddhi distinguishes between non-duality and the rest of experience. And as you, and then you can use that capacity to begin articulating what the different structures are that arise naturally from the divine source, and uh, and so. You may forget. I, I think even the great philosophers, the, they were they didn't realize it. A Hegel and a and a Bradley, uh, they were actually utilizing that same skill that the contemplative philosophers of Asia did, but they just didn't recognize it. They didn't really realize or articulate that they were using yogic intuition, analytical cutting through of phenomena to discover the non-dual empty in the Buddha sense of the term, interrelational ground, the dazzling radiance that's at the very base. The dazzling radiance isn't ultimate. The dazzling radiance is what the buddhi distinguishes in that last moment before there's a dropping off into complete non-dual awareness yeah. in which there is no longer any conceptualization. But as soon as the contact is made again with biophysical existence, then the buddhi and all of the other tattvas immediately spring into play. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that about, you know, Hegel, because I, th I think it's what when we look at the Western canon, what's always interesting to me is the way in which it sort of, you know, I mean, you can it's it, it's the way it reads its own history is kind of in this sort of materialist way. But of course, we could go back to the Greeks and we could see so much of what they do uh, from a spiritual perspective. I mean, they were definitely contemplatives. And then that but that aspect of the ancient Greek tradition just ha was not carried forward in the kind of canonical right. unfolding of the Western tradition. Um, yes. So, okay. So the the other thing that, well, I, I wanted to just mention also that when you were talking about, you know, or this medita meditation-based metaphysics, I really liked um, this term that Jeffrey Lidke, I think, used in his book on uh, the 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 Shakta tradition of Nepal was used this term performative metaphysics, which I really like because it's the idea being performative, I take to mean in that context or that term to mean sort of that it's not the real as a, just like a term reality. Isn't just a term that is used to, mm -hmm. to um, intellectually refer to something. It's actually something that you perform in states of meditation. Yes. You experience that, um, yes. that state of reality. So um, that seems to be like one of the, yes. the defining features. So do you have anything else? Uh, this has been awesome. I really enjoyed this conversation, Ken. Do you have any other um, things you want to mention that would wrap up kind of what we've been speaking about? Um, any sort of untied threads that you'd like to mention or explore? Well, this has been a great conversation, um, uh, Jacob, and you're, you're really very stimulating, uh, and I've enjoyed it. And uh, I guess my final comment would be is that in the spirit not of uh, – is that is that this is one – historically grounded uh, persons and yours as well, understanding in this specific moment with a good-willed attempt to try to make sense of all of this. Yeah. Will people in five or 10 years or even right now look at what's been said and see that it essentializes in the wrong way? No doubt. Mm -hmm. And all I can say to that is I, I look forward to being more, more deeply enlightened and let what we should have charity in the moment for people's attempts with goodwill to make sense of very complex phenomena. And, uh, and, and that has always guided me. I think that's one of the virtues of the academic life as far as I've experienced it. It was a place where I was allowed to question using rigorous methods without worrying that I would, you know, 
alienate somebody. Uh, of course, that's not completely true because we had our doctoral advisors. Oh, well. So you see, every time we make a statement like that, we can always think of a counter argument. As a professor for many, many decades, I can say that there's no matter what position you argue, there's always a counter argument. And the more brilliant the person, the more counter arguments they can come up with. Or I might say the most brilliant person is the person in the room who can counter argue even the ultimate expression of truth that everybody else agrees upon. So anyway, I could go on for many more hours, but it's been great talking with well, you. Well, you will go on for many more hours in the course you're teaching with us. So I want to mention <laughs> yes. that uh, because as everybody who's listening is probably going to be very inspired by you and in your work. So if you want to learn more from Ken, he will be teaching a course with us in February called The Global Mystic, and he'll go much deeper into uh, some of the areas and material that we've explored today. Um, I guess my this is my own curious question as well, but maybe it'll be helpful for some people who are interested in the academic study, but from a practitioner standpoint, it seems to me that what stands out about the Graduate Theological Union is that they're doing this kind of, it's, an, it's a place that's receptive to this kind of work. Are there other programs that are also, you know, uh, open in this kind of way? Um, well, you that know, you that, that's one of the, yes, I would suggest, so the, the GTU uh, has a, the, perhaps the largest doctoral faculty, but uh, there's also my, my alma mater, Harvard, Harvard's the study of religion at Harvard, as well as the Harvard Divinity School. They're, they're different entities within the same or, same university. For me, Harvard was an extraordinary, Harvard Divinity School and the and study of religion was an extraordinary place where I was able to explore and to critically engage both as a practitioner, more under the table in those days, and also all of the intellectual riches of, of, of really the whole world spirituality. Other programs, of course, at the University of Virginia, I live in Charlottesville, they have uh, uh, also a large, uh, if not the largest, religious studies department. Graduate Theological Union is a freestanding um, uh, theological school. University of Virginia has a, a large and very influential religious studies department. Also, the University of Chicago has uh, one of the great religious studies departments as well. Um, so if you're interested in studying religion at the level at which I have been able to study it and many of the people that you're interviewing, then these are the places uh, that you would probably would be first on your list. And I'm sorry if I'm forgetting any others. No, that's these OK. But you, so you that think because that's interesting because so you you do think that I mean, I would I wouldn't I just wouldn't know, obviously, but I would have assumed that a place like Harvard or Chicago would be sort of kind of uh, the this sort of maybe uh, places of the constructivist camp just because they're so sort of such traditional institutions. But you're saying that it is a very receptive and open um, minded kind of place to study in this way. Um, yes, uh, from I, I of course, I, I, I don't I can speak for Harvard. I can speak for GTU. <clears throat> but what I would say is that uh, so what happens in these places, what what we were talking about at Harvard when I was there in the 80s and 90s, the, many of those topics, they didn't become mainstream until recently. Mm -hmm. We were we it's like we were we were we really were standing because academics at this level, we really do study all of these phenomena. And we're often we have the grants. If we're professors, we, we get the grants as graduate students that allow us to go and live on site with so many people. And, and so 
it can harden into, and it often does harden into institutional biases like constructivism only. But now today, there are younger scholars who are exploding that paradigm in these places, or they're raising other questions. And the faculty in these places are often, um, they're, they're people who are products of this extremely liberal progressive environment, and they often hear what their young graduate students are saying to them. Yes. And so, again, every, everything is in context. Uh, yeah. But I, for me, the greatest experience in my academic life, aside from, was, was of course, being a grad student at Harvard. Mm, beautiful. That, for me, there was nothing that parallels that in my life at the Harvard Divinity School and being a grad student at Harvard. Uh, I wouldn't trade that for For me, today in the United States, I think universities are our greatest cultural asset and institution. And I love universities. And I, 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 I think that a place like Harvard, a place like the University of California, University of Virginia, name any public or private university that accredited university, they are, they are the elevator for so many people for social mobility. Bringing a place like, the, like Harvard, for instance, can also bring people, a place like the University of Virginia brings people from disadvantaged backgrounds and gives them the ability, the skills and the credentials that can help them live much richer lives. Mm -hmm. And I know because I come, I grew up in a working class background in Brooklyn back in the day. I was the first person in my family to go to college and I went to Ohio State and I went to Harvard. And so I would say that we that our universities, for me, are our, are our greatest treasure. That's and uh, I have only reverence and respect for them. And they can take whatever criticism we bring to them. Yeah, they certainly can. Yeah. Uh, so this has been wonderful, as, as I've mentioned. Thank you so much, Ken. I really appreciate it. And um, for anybody that wants to get in touch with you, is there a website that they can turn to? Well, they can. Uh, let's see. Um, Yes, there is uh, my Facebook page at, uh, at Ken Rose. Just put in Ken Rose and yoga. That'll bring it up probably. Um, I also have a website. It's called the Radiance of Awareness.com. Mm -hmm. And I have stored there, archived there, my current course, which uh, we're looking for funding to mount it again. It's called Wisdom from World Religions. It's a, a, a course that we just uh, had uh, the Templeton Foundation funded that we we ran it twice we're looking for funding to run it again so that is also wisdom excuse me what did i say um rate the radiance uh i always often say it wrong i better look it up That's because okay. if i give you the wrong one then i'll get emails from everyone saying you we can't find that let me just click here it's the i'll it's the radiance of awareness.com very okay radiance, radiance of, of awareness, awareness. Com. And Excellent. you probably will pull it right up there. Radiance, the radiance of awareness.com. All right. And then again, if anyone wants to um, learn from a little bit more from Ken, he is both participating in our forthcoming conference, which is happening February 2019, which is called the Embodied Brain Neuroplasticity. Um, uh, forgetting the full name, neuroplasticity and contemplative science, basically, um, yeah. and contemplative practice. So we're looking at, you know, some of the stuff we've talked about, the intersection of neuroscience, neuro the discovery of neuroplasticity and how it relates to um, contemplative practice. And then uh, Ken will also be giving a course, as I mentioned, uh, starting in February, mid-February, it will be our second course of that quarter. So keep your eyes peeled for more information on that, everyone who's listening and interested. And uh, Ken, I look forward to speaking with you soon. Okay, thank you, Jacob. Have a great rest of the day. You too.